Um, so I don't have a fully polished written paper unlike his. What I have is essentially notes, uh, but uh, for the sake of following along, it may indeed be helpful if I show you my notes, if I can share the screen. Let's see if this will work. Yes, I think we can do this. Okay. Yes, can, can you all see this now? Yes. Good, okay. So I'm giving this title to take place marking sacred territory in bhakti hagiography. And uh, the first part of this title to take place, I'm borrowing from Jonathan Z. Smith, a, a very prominent, the late Jonathan Z. Smith, uh, scholar of religion at University of Chicago, who wrote uh, a book with this same title, with, however, a much different uh, approach or focus. So in this presentation, I'll give attention mainly to the account of Sri Chaitanya's journey to and Prikram around uh, Vrindavan, which took place in the early 16th century, as portrayed by Krishnadas Kaviraj in his Chaitanya Charitamrita, which uh, he completed in the early 17th century, with some brief uh, broader reflections on the importance of locating bhakti geographically. So let's begin with some opening thoughts. Bhakti traditions, broadly defined, may be characterized by the notion that God is everywhere, not least present in everyone's heart, and therefore his worship and service is to be performed everywhere in all circumstances of time and space. Inclusiveness is a feature of this perspective on the nature of bhakti, a feature shown in many ways, for example, the prominence of vernacular language use in bhakti traditions, but also suggested by numerous Sanskrit Shastric statements. On the other hand, we see that bhakti traditions typically are very concerned to establish and maintain sacred geographies with specific locations designated as particularly special or unique. And so we may see a kind of tension here, which hopefully is a creative tension uh, between these two different aspects uh, of bhakti traditions. Uh, and I think they deserve tradition to understand something of the dynamics of this polarity. So I want to keep this polarity sort of in mind uh, as I approach the subject. To this end, as a small contribution to this issue of sacred place in bhakti traditions, here I focus on this uh, single early 17th century hagiographical account of Sri Chaitanya's pilgrimage to Vrindavan from Jagannath Puri. 
This is Krishnadas Kaviraj Goswami's account in chapters 17 and 18 of Madhyalila of his important masterpiece, the Chaitanya Charitamrita. In this account of taking place or claiming sacred territory, I'm especially concerned with how Kaviraj Goswami portrays Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's interaction with nature and with the human world as he encounters them both en route and in Vrindavan, the central most important place of Krishna Lila for the Gaudiya and other Vaishnava traditions. And I might mention here that uh, this perhaps exposes my concern. Uh, I do have these kind of two engagements, one with the Oxford Center for Hindu Studies, the other with the Oxford Center for Animal Ethics. So I've been thinking a lot about um, this intersection of, broadly speaking, Hinduism, more specifically, Gaudiya Vaishnavism, and a concern uh, for how humans relate with animals, and more broadly, uh, with uh, the natural world as a whole. I will focus on three particular moments in this account, each highlighting important elements of a composite vision of how Krishna Bhakti takes place and in so doing is meant to cherish and preserve place wherever it may be as sacred place of divine Leela. And uh, I should mention here that hagiography is, has a definition, it's a type of biography that, quote, denotes the writing or study of the lives of the saints, or a book containing such lives, in which history is not a primary concern. Now, there's an issue here, can we call Chaitanya Charitamrita hagiography, or should we call it sacred biography? Um, Yes, uh, Joseph O'Connell wrote an entire article on this question. We may also ask how Krishnadas Kaviraj's account illuminates or is illuminated by Jonathan Z. Z. Smith's arguments in his book to take place toward theory in ritual. Uh, he quotes from Claude Levi Strauss, uh, all sacred things must have their place. Uh, we may ask why. He says, being in their place is what makes them sacred. For if they were taken out of their place, even in thought, the entire order of the universe would be destroyed. So a question that we could ask is whether this is true in the case of Krishna Bhakti as understood, uh, especially in the Gaudiya Vaishnava tradition. In any case, my main interest is to consider how this description of a saint's pilgrimage can serve present environmental concerns. And here I'm prompted by Edith Viskagrod's work, Saints and Postmodern Ethics. Uh, this is a monograph which argues that hagiography can serve as a source of inspiration for ethical 
behavior, source of inspiration and guidance, I should say. A bit more about hagiography specifically in North India uh, bears mentioning. Since my inquiry focuses on a hagiographical account of a particular pilgrimage, this should be contextualized in the wider North Indian tradition of hagiography, which has a long and rich tradition uh, in India overall and specifically in North India, where um, historically one looks first to Buddhist texts, hagiographical texts, and then to Jain works. And only after uh, these earlier works do we begin to see Hindu hagiographical works. Uh, William Smith, who wrote uh, another mm, monograph on this subject, has said <clears throat> the need for a hagiography for bhakti traditions was created by the very nature of devotional movement, uh, an interesting uh, point. An important precursor hagiographic genre is about the Vaishnav Alvars. Uh, for example, uh, the Divya Suri Charita of the 12th century, and also the hagiography of the Nayanars, the Shaiva Nayanars, uh, both of the Tamil country. Uh, for my topic, significantly, the poetry of the Alvars is full of descriptions of sacred places, specific physical images of Narayana in specific temples. And I dug up one example of this just last night. Um, uh, this is just one verse out of more than a thousand. O people of this diverse world, and this is from the Tiruvai Mori of Shatakopan Namalvar. O people of this diverse world, move about all over, dancing and singing the praise of lovely Kurukur. And Kurukur is a particular place. Surrounded by stately mansions where lovingly uh, resides Lord Atipiran or Vishnu of auspicious and abiding qualities who created both you and the, de the deities you revere. Mm. North Indian hagiograph hagiographic literature generally shows what may be considered a paucity of literary quality, uh, possibly intentionally so in some cases. An exception, however, is Chaitanya Charitamrita of Krishnadas Kaviraj, who, uh, as uh, again, William Smith says, is a master of classical rhetoric. Um, what are hagiographies for? They have several purposes, um, including most importantly, homiletics, or uh, we may say preaching, providing a model for emulation, highlighting specific virtues of the saints. As we said before, history is not, not the primary concern. Somewhat parenthetically, it bears mentioning that North Indian hagiographies show specific 
general patterns and sub-patterns of saintly activity. Uh, this is highlighted in Smith's book, Patterns in North Indian Hagiography. And uh, these are the main patterns that he identifies, descent, Balialila, marriage, renunciation, appearance, personality, powers, darshan, satsanga, digvijaya, meeting the emperor, enemies, Brahman opposition, temptation, hard bhakti, as he calls it, and svargarohana. Um, these, these are sort of major categories with subcategories under them, which uh, he finds throughout the, uh, the hagiographical literature of North India. And certainly the Chaitanya Charitamrita has uh, many of the patterns that he identifies. Okay, so now we can go to these three, um, what I'm calling key moments in these two chapters of the Chaitanya Charitamrita, uh, moments in Sri Chaitanya's Vrindavan pilgrimage. The first moment I'm calling the journey through Jarikan forest. Um, uh, this is through the, his travels through the wild tract of Jarikhand, which is now uh, an official state of India. On his, I think it's called Jarkhand, isn't it? On his way from Jagannath Puri to Vrindavan. Um, we might want to call this uh, account Chaitanya's communion with animals and tribal peoples. And I'll just quote a couple of verses from uh, this section. Akkadina patte bagra kori ache shayan abe shetar gaye prabhur lagila charan. One day on the path, a tiger was reclining. Possessed with transcendent feelings, the master, Chaitanya, began to touch the tiger's body with his foot. Prabhu kahe, kaha kishna bagra utila, kishna kishna kahi bagra nachite lagila. When the master said, speak the name Krishna, the tiger arose. Intoning the name Krishna Krishna, the tiger began to dance. Kaviraj Goswami then proceeds uh, to tell of a similar encounter with a herd of elephants that Chaitanya induces to also chant Krishna's names. Then he describes a group of female deer crowding around him, causing Chaitanya to recall a Bhagavad Purana verse in which the Vrindavan gopis praise the deer for their good fortune in approaching Lord Krishna as he plays his flute. So we get a bit of, there's a lot of intertextuality in Chaitanya Charitamrita. So here's a translation of that verse. Blessed are all, all these foolish deer because they have approached Maharaj Nanda's son who is gorgeously dressed and is playing on his flute. Indeed, both the does and the bucks worship the Lord with looks of love and affection. 
But in this description, there are greater wonders yet to behold, according to Kaviraj Goswami, who tells us that then tigers peacefully join the deer in following Chaitanya. Not only this, but Chaitanya induces the tigers and the deer to chant Krishna's names, to dance, and to jump, and even to embrace each other and to kiss each other. Bhagramriga anonne kore alingan mukke mukkadiya kore anonne chumban. All of this fun, as Kaviraj Goswami calls it, inspires Chaitanya Mahaprabhu to regard his present location far from physical Vrindavan as Vrindavan. And thus he quotes from the Bhagavata Purana, Yatra Naisarga Durvaira Sahasanri Mrigadaya Mitrani Vajitabhasa Dutarut Tarshanadikam Vrindavan is the transcendental abode of the Lord. There is no hunger, anger, or thirst there. Though naturally inimical, human beings and fierce animals live together there in transcendental friendship. Krishnadas Kaviraj continues with further details of Chaitanya's communion with, his, with a variety of animals, as well as his uplifting encounter with tribal forest residents, the Beals. As I have written previous elsewhere, all of this description, as fantastical as much of it is, serves to awaken readers and listeners, quote, imagination to a state where our most fundamental presuppositions about the workings of nature and the necessity of biotic violence are, at least momentarily, suspended. Divine human-animal celebratory interaction is thus at the very center of what constitutes Vrindavan, as much outside the physical precinct of Vrindavan as within it. Um, and there will be more uh, such descriptions when Chaitanya uh, is present in Vrindavan proper. So now we go to the second of these three moments. Uh, I'm calling arrival and reception in Mathura Vrindavan, but I'm focusing only on uh, a narrow part of this. And this uh, goes into chapter 18 of these two chapters. The second moment for us to consider is uh, in this hagiographic account of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's Vrindavan pilgrimage has to do with Chaitanya's establishing or re-establishing sacred plays, specifically Radha Kunda and Shama Kunda, the former especially coming to be regarded by Gaudiya Vaishnavas as the most exalted sacred place within Vraja Vrindavan and indeed the whole world. For us to note here is Chaitanya's being identified as Sarvagnya Bhagavan, the all-knowing Lord, as the reason uh, he could see what to others was a nondescript paddy field as being the location of Radha Kunda, which decades later will be excavated and built up as we see it today. And then Krishnadas Kaviraj uh, begins describing Chaitanya's encounter with Govardhan Hill, 
a similar major sacred place for Gaudiyas as well as other Vaishnavas. Krishnadas writes, Govardhan, Govardhanadeki Prabhuha Dandavat Akashila Alangiya Haila Unmato. Seeing Govardhan, the Lord prostrated. Embracing one stone of Govardhan, he became mad. For us to note from Chaitanya's encounter with Govardhan is his great reverence for the sacred hill, embracing a stone and falling into a sort of madness challenges us to reconsider our perceptions of so-called inert matter, seeing it instead as living matter that is given all respect when one is spiritually awakened. Um, there are further things that we could discuss uh, from this episode, uh, the background of uh, danger of quote-unquote Turks um, invading, attacking at Govardhan. Um, and uh, there's a listing of the forests, which I want to suggest as Chaitanya travels through each of the forests, simply the listing of those is uh, having the purpose for Krishnadas Kaviraj of giving the message of completeness, that he is marking the place uh, in a complete way. So we go right away to the third of these three moments uh, about locating divinity amidst memory of the Kaliya Dhamana Lila. Our third moment in Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's uh, Vrindavan pilgrimage is described later in the same 18th chapter of the Chaitanya Charitamrita in the Madhya Lila. E matatin ratri loker gamana shobayashi kohe kishna pailun darashana. In this way, for three nights, the people went to Kaliya Lake. Having arrived back, they said, we have gained the darshan of Krishna. So uh, the story here is that uh, Krishna Das Kaviraj is reporting that uh, the sort of the, the folk, the locals of uh, the Braj area, Brindavan, uh, would go to the lake Kaliyadaha, which is known as being the place uh, where, at the time of Krishna's presence, he encountered and fought with and subdued uh, this terrible uh, multi-headed snake. Now, when everyone is going there, they are seeing a light uh, at night on the lake, and they are taking this to be Krishna appearing. And then they are coming and they're reporting this to Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. We have seen Krishna. There's a sort of a double or triple irony in all of this. What is interesting for us here is how Krishnadas Kaviraj enfolds his message of Chaitanya's divinity as Lord Krishna himself within readers and listeners' awareness of the Bhagavata Purana's account of Krishna subduing the multi-headed snake that had been causing deathly pollution in Vrindavan. Uh, 
Thus, we can understand that the self-same Lord Krishna who acted decisively to bring an end to the environmental pollution in Vrindavan of his time has now come again to Vrindavan in the guise of a devotee, a Krishna Bhakta. If the Lord himself comes back to Vrindavan as Krishna's devotee, it would suggest that present-day devotees of Krishna pay particular attention to the mood and behavior of this, I'm putting in quotes, devotee, namely Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, to reflect on how he claimed or reclaimed this central place of Krishna Bhakti enactment, but he did so with utter respect and indeed celebration of all the flora and fauna of this land. And the details of that, of course, are elaborated uh, in this, these two chapters. So I have some uh, concluding thoughts or reflections, and uh, it looks like we'll have uh, plenty of time for discussion or ending early if <laughs> there's not some discussion. But let's see. Uh, for the Gaudiya Vaishnavas, bhakti is enacted in wandering and remembering. As a search for the lost, the separated, beloved Lord of one's life. This enactment brings one, or ought to bring one, in communion with all beings, locating one in a place that is sacred, not in the sense of taboo or set apart, which is sort of the standard understanding of sacred in the scholarship on religion, but rather as a place of eternally expanding living beyond the confines and miseries of birth and death. Uh, a second point is that Krishnadas Kaviraja's Chaitanya Charitamrita, as a Gaudiya Vaishnava hagiography of its most revered and founding personality, Sri Krishna Chaitanya, offers an opportunity to deepen our understanding of place as sacred. As a model of bhakti behavior in Krishnadasa's hagiographic representations of Chaitanya, we can draw ethical guidance, even and especially in this postmodern age of entrenched relativism, as Edith Viskagrod argues. Viskagrod shows that such relativism and consequent apathy is transcended in representations of saints that emphasize and highlight their selflessness and care for others. This, I would argue, is what Krishnadas Kaviraj has accomplished in his Chaitanya Charitamrita, in particular in his account of Chaitanya's pilgrimage to and throughout uh, the forests of Rindavan. And then further focusing on the importance of Rindavan for Krishna Bhaktas, we may note that again following Jay-Z Smith, 
in his book to take place toward Tyrian ritual, the stability of space rendered into devotional place serves to anchor Krishna Bhakti in such ways as to generate and intensify its emotional power to engage people over extended time. This devotional place is integral and complementary to the sonic world of Krishna Bhakti expression as Kirtan or Sankirtan. Kirtan or Sankirtan, as the sonic world is, in turn, the embodiment of Krishna Bhakti expression that extends sacred space, even as it localizes sacred space wherever in the world it is performed. Thus, Krishnadas Kaviraj Goswami's hagiographic account of Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's pilgrimage to Vrindavan, particularly the episodes of his communing with the flora and fauna of Vrindavan, and even prior to reaching Vrindavan, serves both purposes, namely of turning space into sacred place and extending sacred place to the entire world. It is particularly for this reason that Kaviraj Goswami's work is so important for those who seek to practice Krishna Bhakti in a comprehensive way. Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's reported devotional interactions with flora and fauna on the way to and in Vrindavan deserve to be highlighted as aspirational tropes for an activation of environmental consciousness rooted in bhakti. And one thing I want to emphasize, uh, I want to emphasize this point in view of current environmental breakdown, not least in Vaishnava's sacred places, and not least in Vrindavan itself, which in recent years has seen an exponential influx of visitors and burgeoning residential population that shows no indication of slowing down. And then uh, related to this is uh, something I just read a few days ago. An interesting consequence of this buildup of the built environment would seem to be encouraging, namely uh, the recent announcement that the Union Ministry of Road Transport and Highways of India will spend 5,000 crore rupees to improve the 256 kilometer uh, of Braj, uh, Braj's Chorasi Coast Parikram Marg with a five and a half meter wide walkway with grass and tiles and amenities around the entire Braj area. Uh, 5,000 crore rupees, I'm told, uh, would be equal to 80 million U.S. dollars. Um, how this will impact the already seriously compromised environment of Raja may be a cause for concern, even as it may be a cause for celebration at the facilitation of easier access for what could well be multiple millions of yatris. 
And again, for me, this development shows a need for hearing the likes of Krishnadas Kaviraj's account uh, of Sri Chaitanya's devotion permeated honoring of all Vrindavan's creatures in the course of his Vrindavan pilgrimage. I will stop there and see if there's uh, any discussion or any question. I do have further um, issues that I might raise uh, in this context, but let's stop there for now and let's see if there's any, any response, any discussion. Thank you, Dr. Valpe, for your wonderful lecture. Uh, so uh, I think it's time we can extend, uh, open the panel for a question answer session. So if anybody has, uh, has a question, they can raise their hand. Everyone's quiet because it's getting a little late there in India. <laughs> it's not so late yet. Okay. <laughs> if anybody has a question, please come up with your questions. Question or comment, if you have any Any comment, comment yes. <laughs> Maybe I left everyone confused, too confused to know what to ask. <laughs> okay, Arun Mokshi has a question. Has yes. A question. yes, please. Please proceed with your question. We have another question. Uh, I'm reading from the chat box. Mm -hmm. Am I readable? Yes, yes. Yes, you're audible. I'm, I'm Dr. Arun Mukashi, speaking from Pune. Hello. Yes. Sir, in various universities, uh, Hinduism is taught in uh, other universities. So in UK and US. So generally, what are the contents of these syllabus? And uh, what is the response of the students? Generally, <laughs> what is the response of the students? What is the response of students to what? They, uh, all teachings about Hinduism or uh, the teachings of Prabhupada. Oh, I see. Mm. Okay, that's an interesting question, uh, which um, is kind of calling for a, a general response, which is very difficult to supply because we get many different sorts of response. Uh, perhaps what would be uh, relevant, though, and it's not 
so directly tied to what I've just presented, but that's okay as well. Um, one of the very senior professors now retired uh, at Oxford University, uh, Professor Richard Gombrich. He, he, is, he was the Bowdoin professor of Sanskrit, uh, has been a quite uh, important supporter uh, of our Center for Hindu Studies in Oxford. And I attended some of his lectures. He, his own field, his specialty is um, early Buddhism. And so I learned a lot from him on that subject. Um, but what always struck me in particular was a comment he made uh, expressing appreciation of as a kind of uh, specific result or effect of uh, the Center for Hindu Studies. What he said was that until the Center for Hindu Studies was here in Oxford, we always understood Vedanta essentially to mean Advaita Vedanta. Um, that's what we were given, that's what uh, we were teaching. Um, when we spoke of Vedanta, when we were teaching students, that's what we understood. Um, but since the, um, since the Center for Hindu Studies has been here, especially with their uh, very clear uh, presentations on Vaishnava tradition, theology, philosophy, including Vaishnava Vedanta. Now, he said, here in Oxford, we understand that uh, Vedanta is multifaceted. We understand that there are many uh, different forms of, uh, or, or, yeah, types of Vedanta. And in particular, we understand now that there's a very strong uh, tradition of theistic Vedanta as held uh, by the various Vaishnava Vedantists. So that would be one uh, particular response that we've seen. Um, beyond that, I would say it, it, it's very, it's, it's variegated. <laughs> um, we, we have seen, I have seen young people, young students who, when they are exposed to uh, th these, this tradition, they become very inspired and they want to go more deeply. Uh, they take up further study. Uh, I've even experienced in Hong Kong where someone decided, yes, this is actually how I want to live. I want to practice Krishna Bhakti. <laughs> so that, that can also happen. Um, I've also seen, I've also seen, um, well, we've seen over the last um, 30 years, I would say, we've seen a lot more, I would say, nuanced and um, better representative publications on uh, 
Hindu traditions, broadly speaking, also Vaishnava traditions more specifically. And uh, we see this even in, uh, in, in the bookstores, I've seen in Oxford, I've seen elsewhere. Uh, there are journals now, uh, the Journal of Hindu Studies, which uh, we in our center are essentially um, organizing, although it's published by Oxford University Press. There's also the International uh, Journal of Hindu Studies. Uh, there are two or three others. There's the Journal of Dharma Studies, which just started, what, two or three years ago. And in, in these um, peer-reviewed academic journals, we're getting, um, you know, serious voices of, um, of present-day Hinduism, which is uh, being, um, being taken seriously. And it's, it's having a knock-on effect such that um, more, more people in the wider community have a better understanding of what these traditions are, are about. Sir, I am concerned with BRC Pune. Oh, yes. I am concerned with BRC Pune. We have a research center which is affiliated to University of Pune. So I have curiosity that how you teach there because directly here in any university, Bhagavad Gita is not taught. It's very unfortunate. So we are very uh, curious about uh, how it is uh, taught in your universities. That's why I asked the question. Thank you, I sir. see. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Um, I mean, it, it's uh, it's always a challenge, especially in present day India, where there is this concern uh, of what is understood to be the secular uh, orientation of the government. And in fact, the Indian constitution, Indian constitution specifically says this is a secular state. Um, but what I want to say is uh, in the last 15 or 20 years, there's been some uh, the significant steps. And I think this is something uh, Dr. Sardella could say more about significant steps in India of um, recognizing that it's possible to, uh, to study religion in an academic way, uh, which, is not, which is not threatening to any particular um, religious community. I'm sorry, I didn't hear. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, what is, um, as we speak, I would say this is something that's being developed in India gradually, and the Bhaktivedanta Research Center is right, um, right there in the forefront of exploring just how uh, this can be done in appropriate ways which is um, res respecting, honoring, and properly representing the tradition, and at the same time uh, is uh, 
respecting uh, the respecting other traditions, respecting uh, the the notion of the secular secular public space, and so on. Uh, but that's about all I can say. It's uh, it's I'm speaking in very general terms. I don't know. Um, Ferdinando, do you want to say something about this? I know you've been right in the middle of this. <laughs> yes, um, this uh, this is the, due to the fact that uh, in India there are very few, quite few universities that have religious studies uh, as a, as a centrum, as a, as a as an institution, for example. Uh, so uh, the need is there. Uh, at the same time, even speaking about different fields, like, for example, uh, Islamic studies, uh, Buddhist studies, are quite established in India since a long time. But we don't have uh, practically much at all about Hindu studies or Vaishnavism, for that matter. Uh, and that, as you mentioned, the, the, uh, the, uh, the possibility maybe in the future to uh, to study religious studies as a sociology, for example, as a theology, to create a, a, a interfaith, interreligious uh, environment in a way which can be very very useful. Uh, so that's uh, that's happening hopefully uh, soon in uh, in India. So uh, it, it needs to be discussed. It needs to be presented. This needs to be presented as a possibility for the future, so to speak. Yes, it's an ongoing it's an ongoing process, and I think it's particularly interesting uh, that we have the Bhaktivedanta Research Center uh, now in Pune. Uh, this is, I think, the latest avatar uh, of <laughs> we have in Mumbai, we have in Pune now, and um, the 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 first center has been in Kolkata. Uh, so this is a, a very good development, certainly. And I think in, in our own lifetimes, we can see significant results from this, positive, positive results. Oh, speaking of Bhagavad Gita, as you raised the issue. This is something more I wanted to mention. Um, the, the idea of teaching Bhagavad Gita. So there is um, there's an uh, initiative that is that has been done, I believe, two or three times now, and it's being done each year uh, based in Delhi, Iskan Delhi, Punjabi Bhag, uh, for for children in schools. And this is this has been hugely successful where they, they do what they call something-something uh, Olympiad. They, they frame it as a kind of competition, and uh, they frame it as uh, a way of teaching um, morality and ethics. And uh, they've gotten any number of schools, entire schools, uh, involved in this with thousands of students. Uh, and it's it's just um, from two years ago to the this last year, it was a multiple expansion of uh, involvement in that. 
So I think that's also going to uh, start to make make positive waves, if you like. So let's see what else. Uh, we have more questions. Dr. Yes. Rabe. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. uh, this question is from Shwetaji. Shwetaji. What, according to uh, you, be the ideal solution for Braj? Oh, the ideal solution for Braj. I don't think there's a simple uh, a simple solution for Braj. Uh, it is a, an interesting situation because what was a, a fairly, uh, how to say, not so much visited place. Um, when I first went to Vrindavan was 1978 and um, you know, it was kind of a dusty village. <laughs> and now it's becoming, it seems like it's becoming uh, a suburb of Delhi. <laughs> uh, it's, it's exploding. Uh, and the number of visitors to Vrindavan annually, uh, it's been said, is greater than the number of visitors to the Taj Mahal. Um, whatever that number is, but it's, you know, certainly millions of people. Uh, and whenever you get numbers of people in one place, uh, it has its effect on the environment. I would say the first step is education. I think that's, a, you know, the first step in so many things. Uh, it's about educating uh, behavior. It's about... Uh, imbibing in people the understanding that this uh, this place that you're coming to is a sacred place and what does that mean that means if you really want to get the full benefit of being there you have to um, you, ha you have to be extremely careful about how you behave in terms of how you act, even what you say, um, how you act in relation to other people, in relation to uh, all living creatures of this land. And if you do this properly, it's for your benefit because uh, you are going to be, after leaving Vrindavan, uh, you're going to be a different person and you'll be able to influence others in positive ways that can be beneficial for um, wherever you live for the environment. So the, it, <laughs> yeah, what occurred to me when I read this, that they're spending 500, uh, cro 5,000 crores, rupees uh, on this uh, parikram mark is I thought that's great now uh, they should also apportion, maybe not the roads and transportation department, but the education department uh, should apportion 5,000 crore rupees for education 
Um, and this could be focused on Vraj um, or maybe more broadly, uh, specifically on environmental education. Um, anyway, that's, you know, don't get me started. This is such an urgent need worldwide. And now we're just going backwards. Uh, things are falling apart. Uh, what with, you know, wars and conflicts of all kinds, ex uh, ex turning us uh, in an about-face direction to what we need to do. Education, I would say. Uh, maybe I should have made it a simpler answer. Uh, as, as they say, there are three things we need, education, education, and education. <laughs> uh, okay, we have uh, one last question uh, for you. Yes. Uh, Julia Walker has raised her hand. Mm-hmm. Would you please proceed with your question? Hmm. Hello, hello. <laughs> yes, yes, I, I delayed because I, I was not unmute. Now it's okay. Yes. Um, First, I need to tell the uh, first time I have contact with this knowledge and, and this tradition, Vaishnava, and, uh, and then maybe a stupid question, but uh, I want to congratulate to you and to the previous uh, presentation because I, it's wonderful this a scientific research in all these subjects. For me, it's a surprise. And then I want to know uh, about Brindava, uh, what you tell it was like Eden, a peaceful land, etc. Uh, in which text uh, I can uh, find about this Brindava and Lila of Krishna? Uh, I think uh, in Bhagavata Purana, maybe, yeah. I don't know. And then uh, related with this, I want to ask, who wrote this? Bhagavadita was uh, written by Vyasa, I suppose. And mm -hmm. then uh, Bhagavata Purana was written by whom? And then also I want to know, uh, where to find this villa of Krishna and this peaceful land like Eden? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, my question. <laughs> okay. Well, just very briefly, because uh, we're almost out of time. Yes, you are right uh, to read about uh, Krishna Lila in Rindavan. It is uh, especially to be found in the Srimad Bhagavata Purana, specifically in the 10th book of it. There are 12 books we call cantos, and it's in the first, um, first several, like 40-some chapters uh, of the 10th book in which you'll find uh, the details of Krishna Lila. Uh, the composer 
of the Bhagavata Purana traditionally is credited to Vyasa, uh, who similarly composed, uh, compiled uh, the Mahabharata, in which we also find uh, this relatively small work, the Bhagavad Gita. Um, I say traditionally because modern scholars, they uh, are always a bit nervous uh, if we say, you know, Vyasa 5,000 years ago wrote the Bhagavata Purana. But this is the tradition, and uh, this is the main source. And then uh, in later times, and particularly following uh, the time of Chaitanya, his uh, his close followers, and then the next generation, wrote extensively. First of all, many of them lived in Vrindavan, and they wrote about Vrindavan. Um, and uh, they, um, yes, the next generation wrote about this practice of parikrama, of um, circumambulating, of walking around Vrindavan. This we find in a... Uh, particular text, the Bhakti Ratnakara, which is originally in Bengali, but there are there is a translation of. Yeah, so um, I hope that answers at least some of your questions. Oh, and you wanted to know where to get Bhagavatam. Well, um, if you want, uh, if you want the full Bhagavatam uh, unabridged uh, with extensive commentary, uh, the most widely available and I would say most comprehensible is that of A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada, uh, who um, translated and commented in English uh, most of the Bhagavatam and then his followers completed the task. For summary, um, actually selections and then summaries of the entire Bhagavatam uh, is the book uh, which I uh, myself together uh, with Dr. Ravi Gupta um, prepared, uh, which is published by uh, Columbia University Press. This is simply called The Bhagavata Purana. Uh, selected readings. So that's much, much, much shorter. Uh, we have made selections. So that could be a starting point. And then from there, you can uh, go to the full Bhagavatam. So uh, thank you, Dr. Varpe. I think we don't have any more questions. Yes. Uh, yes, thank you. Thank you for a wonderful lecture. Um, I would now uh, welcome Dr. Sardella. I would request him to um, express his vote of thanks. Yes, thank you. Uh, dear professors, lecturers, PhD students, students, and dear guests, I would like to first, uh, firstly deeply thank Professor Ravi Gupta from Charles Red Chair of Religious Studies from Utah State University 
in the United States for his speech called Interfaith Bhakti and Gaudiya Vaishnavism Lessons from Sri Chaitanya's Dialogue with the Kazi of Navadvip. A very important discussion of the link between Islam and Gaudiya Vaishnavism uh, about uh, interfaith and dialogue, which is always uh, a need, and a presentation also of multiplicity in, uh, in uh, uh, monotheism, for example, and to present uh, the knowledge about the multiplicity that is present in the Bhagavata Purana, in Vaishnavism, uh, in the traditions, uh, it's a big challenge because uh, as uh, uh, Professor Gupta mentioned, the knowledge about the multiplicity, uh, which is uh, very complex in, in Vaishnavism, is uh, very little known uh, if we discuss the relationship between, for example, Vaishnavism and Christianity or Islam. So very important points. And I would also like to thank uh, Dr. Kenneth Valpe, a research fellow of Oxford Center for Hindu Studies from Oxford University, United Kingdom, for this very interesting topic uh, called To Take Place, Marking Sacred Territory in Bhakti Hagiography. This was also a very important presentation about the large amount of Vaishnava and Bhakti Hagiography texts in India shaping their sacred territories as well. Uh, the focus uh, in the presentation was uh, uh, the focus was Sri Chaitanya's journey to Vrindavan, portrayed by Krishna Daskavriraj Goswami in his Chaitanya Charitamrita and Krishna Bhakti, uh, with three areas: one, loving animals such as tigers and deers; two, Govardhan Hill and touring the forests; and three, locating divinity amidst memory. Uh, and uh, also, uh, uh, Dr. Valpe mentioned his uh, important books about, for example, the Bhagavata Purana, selected readings, uh, which are very, uh, very important for spreading and get a deeper understanding of uh, the Bhagavata Purana. So uh, I would like to uh, thank you. Thank you so much for your wonderful presentations. Thank you. Uh, so, uh, thank you, uh, Dr. Kenneth Walpe, for your brilliant exposition and uh, uh, also discussing some of the queries of the participants. So, we end this session here and uh, tomorrow we will meet uh, for another academic session uh, sharp at 10 a.m. So, with this, we uh, end this session. Thank you all who have uh, joined us uh, for this deliberation. Uh, thank you all. Thank you.